0: Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Welcome to the Breaking Stars podcast, where we feature stories of people that didn't go to Ivy League schools, went to HBCUs, went to school outside of the Bay, and did not get high GPAs. Psych, We also do interview people that did get their MBAs, went to traditional schools, and have some of the best GPAs in the world. But the point is, is that we feature stories of regular people like you and me that you can relate to and be inspired by. And it's great, period. Uh, What's not great is that last night I had a nightmare. And in that nightmare, I saw a coding bootcamp closing and when i woke up in a cold sweat after doing some reflection in the morning and going through tech news like i always do i read a headline that announced another coding bootcamp laying people off so it was not a dream it was reality which is why on today's breaking starts podcast we felt it was very important for us to address not only the consolidation of coding bootcamps, but also why universities are launching their own coding bootcamps, why online coding bootcamps are launching their own, the competition in the landscape, and is why we decided to feature Sharon, who runs Code Newbie Podcast that you'll learn more about. It's one of the best in the game, so check that out. But before doing that, I wanted to give a shout out to all of you that recognize only the strong survive that it is survival of the fittest shout out to all of you that are able to stay focused amidst the noise while being aware of the noise shout out to all of you that are able to push through when you have every reason to be concerned and worried but you see the light at the end of the tunnel shout out to all of you that are leveraging the breaking stars community to support each other and build each other and grow together shout out to all of you that are sharing this podcast as a resource for other people to stay motivated and stay grounded and so that they can see examples of people that have been able to bounce back from different situations if you guys need any help make sure you reach out to us leverage the chat by talk to anyone uh, send us an email without further ado let's break in yo 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 this is ruben Harris. So i'm here with the homies Arjun and Timo meister and this is the Breaking Stars Podcast. Timur, can you please tell the people what we're doing today?
1: Hey, guys. So Timur out here. So it's Friday morning, it's 8 a.m., and we're recording today's episode out of App Academy. When we say break into tech, we don't just mean break into startups in San Francisco, and tech is everywhere. So we want to highlight stories of people who broke into tech in New York, Austin, Chicago, LA, and ATL, as well as other cities. So with that said, our guest today broke into tech in New York City, and she recently moved to San Diego, and she's joining us over Skype, so we're excited to share her story with you guys.
0: Ruben, can you please introduce the guest? Yeah, Timo, we're here with Saran Yitbark, who's not just an amazing bootcamp grad, as you mentioned, from New York, but she attended Flatiron School and launched one of the dopest podcasts out there called Code Newbie. She has over 1.4 million downloads, is listened to in over 100 countries, Has a Twitter community of over twenty-seven thousand people. Organizes meetups in ATL, Philly, New York, DC. So if you ever want to meet people in person, you should definitely check those out. For the people that check her out on Twitter, you could listen to her, or you could reach out to her on her subject-focused check-ins on Wednesdays at nine PM Eastern, and then you could check in on Twitter on Sundays for a coding check-in because she's really catering to this early audience that so that people recognize that there are multiple ways to learn how to code. And so, Ron, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you. Also, can you come with me to all of my sales meetings and just say what <laughs> you just did? Because I feel really awesome right now. That was a cool intro.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, we're really excited to build with you and hear your story because we listen to your podcast regularly, but a lot of times it's nice to hear about where you started. And from what we understand, you come from mm-hmm. Ethiopia, you have African parents and you know, having family from South Africa, I understand, you know, the type of career paths that they, they typically uh, think about. And so, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up?
2: So I'm from Ethiopia. I was born in Ethiopia. I came to the U.S. when I was almost three years old. And for me and my family, education was definitely number one. It was top priority. There's nothing else above it. And my parents are both pharmacists. And so I think they were really the whole time rooting for me to get into medicine and to get into the And I think growing up, I was much more of a theater kid of like an artsy creative, like I did a lot of dance, I did a lot of acting and performances, and I drew a lot. And I was kind of more on that side of things. And it really wasn't, I think, until early college, I took my first bio class, and I had an amazing professor. And I thought, oh, biology can actually be really, really interesting. And so much to my parents' relief, I decided to pursue being a doctor, and I completed the pre-med track. I taught Chemistry. I did biochemistry research. I did a lot of the the hard sciencey things, and then it was either end of my junior year or beginning of my senior year where I actually shadowed a doctor, and that's when I realized that I don't actually care about saving people's lives. As cold as that may sound, that's just the truth. <laughs> I was really excited about the sciences and the way things worked and how they came together and what the story of each molecule was and that kind of thing. But I I wasn't really excited about the end result. And so I said to myself, I feel like if you're a doctor, you should care about saving people's lives. And so point I decided to stop studying for the MCAT and I decided to kind of figure out what other options there were. And mm. I remember very vividly telling my parents that I wasn't going to be a doctor anymore and they they were very very unhappy with me.
1: Yeah, and I remember <laughs> were, when I cool. I remember when I had to tell my parents that I was going to quit my job to learn how to code, move out to Asaf do some school that they've never heard of, and they definitely did not approve of that. But at the same time, mm-hmm. I was like, "Mom, like I'm already an adult. I know what's best for me. Like this is the career path that I want to take." And sometimes yeah. you just have to go and do it. So take us back to um, so you were in college when you did have that conversation. Were you just like letting your parents know that you already made up your mind, or were you like, were you set on uh, doing something else, or you just wanted to explore other career paths?
2: Yeah, at that point I didn't know what to do next, which to me is is absolutely terrifying. I'm a huge planner. I like to have everything in my life organized. I like to be in control as much as I possibly can in every situation. So, for me to have this very, very strict organized pathway for the rest of my life and then to all of a sudden say, "I'm going to abandon that and do something else." You know, when I'm a senior in college and I'm and it was it was so frustrating to me personally because I had so many friends and knew so many people who kind of wasted their years in college and, you know, didn't really take it seriously and didn't do any internships, didn't do extracurriculars, the time they're seniors. They're like, well, I don't really know what I want to do with my life. Whereas I had worked my butt off, you know, the entire time I was in college, I was so focused, but I still ended up in a place where a senior year, I didn't know what I was doing with the rest of my life. And I was so angry. I was so, so angry that I let that happen. And so, yeah, I, when I told my parents, I, knew 100% that no matter what they did, no matter how angry they were, and they were very angry. I think my dad barely talked to me for the next year, which is very hard because we <laughs> <Yeah>. lived together. <laughs> but when I told them, I knew that no matter what the repercussions, I wasn't going to you know, go back on that. But not having the next step was very, very frustrating.
1: Yeah. And so take us back. So what did you do to figure out what the next step was going to be for you?
2: So I looked back on the things that had interested me throughout my life, things that I had already done in college. The good thing about being pre-med is that you don't have to be a bio degree. So I was actually, I got a double degree in psychology and English just because I liked those two subjects. So I think I considered just about everything under the sun except for engineering. And you know, I don't really know why I just automatically excluded engineering, but I thought about being an accountant. I thought about getting into business. I thought about you know just doing the hard sciences and being a researcher because I'd done a little bit of that. I thought about just about every single subject that you could. And then ultimately, I said, you know, I have done a lot of journalism. Like, that's the one thing that's been pretty consistent throughout my life. I started writing for the high school paper. I, I like won awards for my articles and stuff. And I had, you know, done a bunch of really great internships throughout college. And the great thing about being pre-med is you don't have to get an actual science degree as long as you finish the pre-med courses. I think there's like 12 of them. You can pick whatever major you want and do whatever extracurriculars you want. So I was a uh, double degree in English and psychology because I just enjoyed them. And I used my free time to do science stuff, but to also do things that interested me. And so I had done a lot of journalism during that time. So I said, OK, maybe we can try this as a profession. And so I ended up getting a um, like a two-week contract job at NPR
0: oh, wow. no right after so I graduated. <laughs>
2: At NPR, and then uh, that turned into like another two week contract. That turned into like a four month contract. And so I, oh my goodness, I I learned a lot on that job. That was one of the most fun jobs I've ever had, and also the one of the most stressful jobs I've ever had. And so yeah, I think the fact that the first job I had out of college was NPR, and my family's been listening to NPR since you know since I was born. So well, I guess not because we were in Ethiopia. So since I was like three, <laughs> and so I think that that helped a little bit because. You know, they thought, okay, she's not a doctor, which we're very upset about, but we really like NPR, so that's pretty cool too. But I think that they were still very, very concerned about the long term, you know, what happens after that job. Is she gonna go back to school? They really, really wanted me to go back to school. I think they still want me to go back to school. So yeah, it was um (laughs) it was a a, a murky time for sure.
1: Yeah, so it sounds like you took the time to figure out what you wanted to do next, and you got this job at NPR and you're hustling now, even though maybe your parents not approve of all of these d- decisions that you made. Take us um, a little bit further into your story and tell us how did you actually discover coding and how did you make that transition? And was it did you run into any challenges along the way?
2: Yeah, sure. So when I was, I think it was a year after graduating college, I ended up moving to uh, New York City. I got a role as a fact checker at a Discover magazine and During that time, I was trying to figure out, you know, I think at that point I actually had already applied and got accepted to a bunch of journalism programs. I was very close to either attending NYU or Columbia. And as I was kind of figuring all that out, I read the Steve Jobs book. And that book to me was the first time that technology felt accessible to someone like me, where, you know, when I think about technology and engineering, I think of Programmers and gamers who are, you know, very antisocial and just staring at their computer screens and not talking to anybody. And there's like, there's a, a stereotype for sure of what, you know, a, a techie nerd looks like. And I thought, like, that's, I don't like any of those things. I hate video games. And so I always kind of ruled that out. But this book really emphasized how much Steve Jobs cared about design and art and the human experience. And he was so emotional and, you know, in a, in a good way, I think, with his this product development process. And I thought, "Ooh, I can relate to those things. I totally can see myself doing and caring about the things that that book really highlighted. And so I started to investigate that world a little bit more. And so at that point, I read like every startup book I could find. I follow like all the startup people, all the tech people. I really, really immersed myself in that world. I ended up cold emailing a bunch of startup CEOs, had a bunch of coffee dates. One of those coffees turned into an internship. The internship turned into a job. And then you know, I worked I worked more on the business side of startups for about three years. And in that time, I felt like I kept hitting this wall where because I, you know, I didn't have an MBA, I wasn't that strong in business in terms of my background, but I had also zero experience on the technical side. So I felt like my value add to a team was very limited. And I felt like I couldn't participate and help out and be involved to the degree that I wanted to. And so I thought okay what is you know, how do I fix that what can I do to make myself more valuable to you know really influence product decisions and I think for maybe a year or so I kept coming back to this idea of coding but every time I I brought it up or I mentioned it to someone I would always get discouraged you know the big reason was well you're such a good talker you don't need to learn to code you know and it was a lot of well, you're so, you're so social and you're so, you're a great salesperson. Like, why don't you just, why don't you just focus on that? Like, there's no, you're probably not going to like it. You're probably going to hate coding, which is a lie. I freaking love coding. It's like one of my favorite things, but I found that just very, very discouraging. And for me, the final straw was I was product managing this thing that we were building. We had this remote dev team, this remote dev shop work on it for us. And it was so frustrating because they just did a horrible job. And they didn't listen and they didn't, they didn't deliver anything on time and I was so frustrated because the whole time I'm thinking, I don't think what, you're, what we're asking you to do is that complicated but because I don't have the tech skills or context, I can't make that judgment call and I can't jump in and that was such a frustrating process for me that I said, screw it, I'm going to finally take a step and I'm finally going to just you know, quit and learn to code.
1: Awesome. So what were your next steps after that? So there's a few options on the table nowadays Like when you want to learn how to code. So what did you consider and then what did you ultimately pick?
2: Sure. I considered, I think, just about everything. I looked at the free and online resources. I looked at the paid online resources. I looked at boot camps, uh, which I don't think at that point were as popular and as common as they are now. I looked at uh, continuing education courses and I even considered just going back to school entirely. And getting a full, you know, a new bachelor's degree on computer science.
0: Was learning and, how to code really easy for you?
2: Ugh, no. Oh my God. I thought learning to code was one of the hardest things ever. And to me, it was really frustrating how hard it was because I taught organic chemistry. Okay. I taught like one of the most notoriously difficult and frustrating subjects you can take in college. And so the fact that I could do that, but I couldn't for the life of me figure out what a for loop's purpose is, drove me absolutely nuts. And it, it was to the point where I said to myself, there just has to be something wrong with me. Like, it must be me. There must be something about me that makes programming this uniquely difficult and frustrating challenge where I can conquer all these, you know, really hard. And I was, I was always really good at math and, you know, like I could do all the other obviously difficult things, but this programming stuff is just, it did, whatever is the opposite of comes naturally, that's what it was for me. It just, it did not work, it did not work.
1: So yeah. what made you continue to pursue it if it felt like you were hitting a roadblock after roadblock?
2: Yeah, I continued to pursue it. So I actually tried to learn to code two times. The first time I took an MIT OpenCourseWare we class, I think now they just renamed the whole thing to edX. But back then it was an MIT course. It was an intro to programming course. And that class, I remember I, I took it like in the evenings. I watched lectures in the evenings when I came back from work. And I had my little notebook and I treated it like I did any other science class in college where I had my notebook, I had my different colored pens, I had my sticky notes and my highlighter, and I took notes on it and I looked things up. And, you know, if you're a programmer that you know that that's not how you learn to code, you learn to code by actually coding. And so, you know, I, I kept hitting a wall, I think, one, because that class is not made for people who don't know anything about code. It's made for people who already kind of know what they're doing. But also because there was no one there to say, no, 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 your process is totally wrong. This is a better process for you when it comes to coding. So I think just not having that person around to course correct was a huge reason why that first attempt didn't work. I came back to it because I just didn't really feel like I had any other options. I felt like if I wanted to reach my goals and if I wanted to have a really great career in the tech startup world, that this was just an investment I had to make. And the second time around, what made it so much easier is the fact that I started with things like Code Academy and Treehouse and Code School, and these are all resources that were actually designed for people like me who don't have any programming contacts, any programming background, and so it started really, really. It started actually, you know, in, in square one or square zero even, which was huge. I think my frustration with a lot of the online courses at the time was that it was doable and manageable in terms of getting through it. But it didn't always add up to a cohesive story that helped me build on the things that I was learning. So there were still like other difficulties, but the difficulty switched from you're too stupid to do this to mm, maybe these materials aren't the best for yeah. learning the way that and I learned. And that, that shift, it I think is It's crucial. interesting
1: that you bring it up because I think a lot of people encounter that because especially folks with traditional educational degrees, They look at MIT, Harvard, or like Coursera courses on computer science as like the probably the go to resources. And then they try them and they realize that these courses weren't really designed for beginners. And it really like, I almost feel like the treehouse or like Code School, they have like a very strong user experience emphasis. So they put themselves in the shoes of beginners and they try to go through the coursework from the perspective of like, hey, how would someone who is starting out feel about these challenges or these problems? Whereas if you look at more traditional courses, they're being taught in like I guess the an old way of teaching computer science, and so a lot of folks who are beginners who traditionally have shunned away from these like super quantitative studies, they struggle and they kind of stop short as soon as they hit some roadblocks. And I remember I took probably like two or three Coursera courses that were taught by like from various universities, and I just found that it was like kind of a little bit boring, too theoretical. I didn't really see how it applied, and then when I switched to resources like Treehouse or Code School, which were fun, they were gamified. The exercises were they were challenging, but they weren't impossible to solve. And I found mm-hmm. that kind of once you get in, into the hang of it, you're able to do it. And even though it's still not easy, like the problems are not uh, blockers, you know. And there's yes. always uh, opportunities to to look at hints or get some help from the software, uh, from like the games. And so that actually helped me go from like not knowing anything about JavaScript to learning the fundamentals, which then enabled me to progress. uh,
0: So then you got into Flatiron and then, you know, what was that experience like? And then, you know, what did you do after?
2: Yeah. So I went to the Flatiron school and it was it was awesome honestly it was a really really positive experience there were a couple parts of it that i was a little frustrated about but overall in terms of you know the money spent and the investment and the return on that investment it was totally worth it for me but i also very very strongly feel that not you know every solution isn't for everyone and so for me the bootcamp model really really worked because i like to deep dive and fully immerse myself in a topic whenever i can especially if i'm learning it I really, really like high pressure, high intense situations. I think I do way better in those situations than not. And I came prepared, you know, before I started the program, they have you do a pre-work and the pre-work is about 100 hours or so of online coursework. It's like a, you know, a combination of um, a lot of the, the free and online resources. And I did that pre-work twice before day one. You know, I came in and when I'm sitting in class, always in the front row, of course, and, you know, listening to teachers, you know, lecture and go through stuff. I was hearing things for the third time. So it was really, really sinking in. And I think that there are lots of people in my class and just in boot camps in general that didn't take it as seriously and who, yeah, I know for sure there there are a lot of people who didn't even finish the pre-work. And so, you know, for me, I got a lot out of it because I took it very, very seriously. So it ended up being a very positive experience for me.
0: Awesome. And so when you finished, what did you do? Did you start your CodeNobi community on Twitter while you were inside of the boot camp, or when did that happen?
2: No, it was after the boot camp. So one of the things that I noticed is that the curriculum was really good. The teachers are great. Avi um, Fonbaum is a, an amazing, absolutely an amazing teacher. Shout out to but, Avi. Mm-hmm. But one of the other huge benefits of doing a program like that is that you have a community of people. I had 44 other people who sat with me every single day who understood when things didn't work and, you know, could empathize with that. I had folks who, you know, cried with me when everything was a failure and who, you know, high fived me when things worked. And it was very, very different from being in your apartment, not talking to anyone or just like shouting at your computer, because that's a very real thing. And, you know, just not having anybody to understand how emotionally exhausting learning to code is. And oh. so I said to myself when I graduated, you know, I think that community is absolutely essential and got me through some really, really frustrating moments. But if you can't take off work for three months and spend, you know, eleven, twelve thousand dollars 12000 without, you know, any help from like student loans, and that kind of thing, then what do you do? How do you find that community? Yeah. And so that was really the inspiration for the Code to Be Twitter chat. And at that point, I think Twitter chat's a little bit less common now, but back then they were everywhere. And I thought this is such a great tool. And this tool. was
0: 2013, right?
2: hmm yeah and I, and
0: I, yeah i mean the fact that to your point i remember when twitter first came out and everybody was doing it the fact that you've sustained it from then until now is is amazing and so shout out to you for doing that
2: thank you yeah we've had um we've been doing twitter chats just about every week for yeah for like three years
0: <laughs> and so and so that but like that's what you were just doing to create that community and then it kind of like drew you To doing more, so and
1: can you also explain what a Twitter chat is? Because yeah, I know a lot of people who are on Twitter. They're all about like Twitter and Twitter chats and hitting people up on the DM. But for people who might not be using Twitter, can you just give them a brief rundown?
2: Yeah, sure. So a Twitter chat is a I guess like a medium is a good way to think about it. It's a format. So we pick a hashtag. Our hashtag was Code newbie. You pick a time. So for us, it's Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern Time for one hour. And people do different things with that format. A lot of people do AMAs or they have like a featured guest. I personally AMA have made ask me anything's right? things, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Yep. Yep. And, um, and I personally, I don't think that's a really good use of Twitter. I think that Twitter is a really great way to have many, many, many conversations at one time. And so what we do is we pick a topic for that week and we ask, you know, three to four questions, to the whole community and everyone gets to chime in and answer them. And what ends up happening is you end up with these, with an opportunity for people to connect, to share resources, to support each other and to, you know, voice their opinions in a relatively safe space. And so, yeah, we do, we'll do one hour. And at the very end, we have a section called shout outs, where if you wrote a blog post that week, if you have an event coming up, if you were just really proud of an accomplishment that, you know, you made in coding, if you have a win that you want to share, you you can tweet it, and we'll retweet it, we'll favorite it. Uh, and so it's just been a really, really great way to start an online community. And yeah.
1: how does someone actually start that? Because I know there's a lot of people who feel similar to you. like They feel like the bootcamps do provide that sense of community and they want to give back. A lot of people write blogs after they get out of a bootcamp, like documenting and sharing the story of transitioning into tech. But if you don't have a huge following on Twitter, then... How do you actually build that community?
2: You beg people to retweet you for many, many months until you don't need it anymore. That's the (laughs) secret. Yeah, I think it was like the first, at least three months, maybe even more than that. I had a couple people who followed me who were like very well-respected in tech and had much larger following. I think at that point I had like maybe a thousand followers. And so I would DM them and I'd say, hey, I'm starting this Twitter chat. It'd be really awesome if you could like help promote it, if you could retweet it. And they did. And I asked every single week for many, many months until it built itself up to the point where I didn't need to ask anyone anymore.
0: Awesome. Nice. Very cool. And so, you know, you built this amazing community on Twitter that grew to almost 30,000 people. And then, well, actually before then, you know, a lot of times we have plans that we make and then sometimes those plans like call us to do them and you decided to create an audio format. And. Why did you create that? Because I don't think that was like, did you dream to be a podcaster when you were younger?
2: (laughs) No, I wouldn't say that. When I was at NPR, I like my dream job was definitely to be the host. I thought the host job was the best. But once I decided not to journalism, I kind of thought like, okay, well, that's that's not going to happen anymore. But yeah, the podcast that came about because I felt like Twitter is a great way to start many conversations, but it's not a great way to to dive deeper into a specific story or a specific topic. You, know, you can't really have a full conversation on Twitter. I mean, you can try, but you'll end up really pissed off at the end of it. <laughs> and so I thought to myself, what is a format where you can really focus on one thing and really explore it and unpack it? And I thought to myself, oh, podcasting. That's a really great format. You can interview different people, you know, it can be you can do it remotely. And because it's audio, you know, people can listen to it as just part of their life, right? Like when they're at the gym or when they're uh, commuting, when they're cooking, you know, there's so many opportunities to easily build that into your life that doesn't necessarily interrupt it. And so I thought audio is a really, really great, great medium for that. And it's actually interesting because I think when people hear that I used to work at NPR, they assume that I learned all my podcasting stuff there, but I really didn't. NPR was very much a writing job where I did research and booked guests and wrote scripts. And so I got some of my interviewing skills from there, but I really had to understand, you know, equipment and editing and a lot of that stuff just from the podcast. So yeah, that's how that came about.
1: Awesome, awesome. And um, before we dive deeper into kind of your podcasting career and code newbie, after the coding bootcamp, did you and uh, did you try to get a job as an engineer? And um, if so, like what was what were your steps after you finished the coding bootcamp?
2: Yeah. So the bootcamp at the end, I think it was the last week we had a, a science fair where we had a little booth with our computer set up. And we had, I think, for our science fair, I'm pretty sure we had over 100 employers come in and talk to us and meet with us. And so for me, that's how I got a job. I think by the time that event was over, I think I booked like six to seven interviews just from that one day. And one of the interview requests actually came in like an hour after the science fair ended. And so for me, that the key was really just getting in front of people. I don't think that I would have made the same impression by submitting a form the way that I could by, you know, grabbing you and showing you my code and showing you how excited I was to, you know, to, to know how to code and to program and to build things. So that was definitely the key for me. I ended up being a, what was the title? Hacker in Residence. Yeah, that was the name of it. I ended up being a hacker in residence for a nonprofit called the New York Tech Meetup which did or which currently does monthly demo nights for different startups and you know tech cool tech apps and stuff like that and i did that for i think it was seven months and then after that i was an apprentice at thoughtbot and then after that when i was about to start my like official developer job i ended up getting um a thing at microsoft and worked there for a year
1: yeah so you were doing the podcasting on the side and you were doing the like the tweet chats on the side as you were pursuing your like day job right and um, yeah this is mm -hmm. and how did you kind of balance that out because i'm sure like you had you you had to do a lot just going through the job search alone it's it's like a full-time job how did you find the time to do all of the other stuff
2: i'm a very proud workaholic so for me there you know whether i was doing code or not when i came home from work i was gonna still keep working on something and so for me, it just happened to be Code Newbie, and that happened to be the thing that I like to do. I'm very fortunate where like, you know, I don't have any kids, I don't have dependents. I don't really have to, you know, take care of anyone or worry about anybody's time, but my own. And so, you know, and if if you have that type of lifestyle and you really, really, really enjoy being busy all the time, then it doesn't really become a burden. It's, it's just, you know, how things are. And it was really great. The thing that made it hard is after, I think it was doing Code Newbie for two years, where there were enough projects and I only had enough hours to keep things going, but I no longer had any headspace or bandwidth to try out new things. So that was the part where it became difficult. It's, you know, the podcast, the Twitter chat, we had like the Slack community, we had the meetups, all that stuff, just maintaining it, just keeping up with that momentum was itself, you know, a twenty plus hour a week job. And there just wasn't time left over to expand or think bigger than that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And Given that um, that you were thinking about, you know, you were thinking about doing this full time, but you did come from a boot camp, um, and you talk about all these different types of things. I think before talking uh, going deeper about Code Newbie, it would be good to get a sense of like your thoughts on the overall boot camp space, just because you know Arch and Timo, they went through there. My brother's about to get into one. You know, education system traditionally is changing, uh, so it'd be good to get your perspective on that.
2: Sure. So, like I said, I think boot camps are really great for a particular type of person. So, you know, it's it's very intense. I don't think people understand how incredibly hard boot camps are. I mean, you know, I think the hours that they list on the website, If you're, this is also assuming you're doing an in-person boot camp. There's also way more remote opportunities and online opportunities, which I think is great and just opens it up more, you know, to, to different lifestyles and, and folks in different physical geographic locations as well. But for the in-person bootcamp, I think they say it's like nine to five every day. No, it's like nine to midnight every day. Like there's so much work to do. There's so much to think about. You constantly feel, I mean, it's it's called a bootcamp because it's very, very intense and it's very, very immersive. I think it was like the last week of my bootcamp experience. I don't think we had any food in the fridge at all. Like I just could not find time to go grocery shopping, even for myself. And so I think that it's very intense. It's very hard. It's totally doable. But I think you have to walk into it assuming that no one's going to take care of you but you. I hear a lot of people kind of assume, especially based on like the marketing that you see from boot camps, that oh, I'm going to go in and as long as I'm accepted, the program is going to take care of me. And that's just not, first of all, that's not how life works. It's definitely not how, boot, not how boot camps work. And so when you go in, yes, they are there to support you. You know, hopefully they're going to provide you the tools that you need, the resources you need. Hopefully they have a really good curriculum. But at the end of the day, it is your job to make sure that you're learning. It is your job to ask for help. It is your job to get a job at the end. And so I think an important thing to keep in mind if you are considering a boot camp is the boot camp itself is an available resource, but it's not, it it doesn't guarantee you an education. It guarantees you the opportunity for you to learn. And you have to figure out for yourself what that learning requires.
0: Got it. Got it. And so... We also know that like some of these boot camps are kind of like shutting down. Some of them are still thriving. Like, what are your thoughts on like that whole dynamic?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting because I think it was like many years ago. I actually thought about starting my own boot camp, and I ran the numbers and I thought of you know what the business model would be, and the margins just weren't that great considering how much overhead there is, and considering how you can only serve you know if you want to have like a very high quality program you can only serve a certain amount of people per class before you need to hire instructors. So I always wondered about that. You know, I always wondered like, how are bootcamps able to make it make it sustainable? Because the I don't think the margins are like that great. And so the fact that two of the biggest bootcamps are shutting down the Iron Yard and Dev Bootcamp to me is kind of like, oh, like maybe, maybe it's not a sustainable business model. So for me, it really, really caught me off guard. I didn't see it coming at all. And I've talked to a bunch of alumni from those programs who are also very very shocked and totally didn't see it coming at all. So, yeah, it makes me a little bit nervous, it makes me wonder what that means for the ecosystem of, you know, career transitioner focused programs, but I I hope that what ends up happening is instead of a focus on in person that there is a focus more on online, which I think is a lot more affordable, a lot more accessible and, you know, can just reach way more people. So, I'm hoping that's the thing that comes out of this. You know, I hope it's not, you know, post back programs are very difficult and impossible. I hope what comes out of it is focusing on online, remote, more flexible programs is, you know, is better and more sustainable than really high-touch, in-person
1: yeah. uh, programs. And just to add to what you were saying, I think the bootcamp model works, like taking someone who has not a lot of experience, putting them through this very immersive program and then helping them with the job search uh, helping them get jobs as engineers works. I think what happened over the last 5 years is that Dev Bootcamp was one of the original was one of the original bootcamps and a lot of the founders of Hack Reactor, App Academy, uh, Hackbright, they actually some of the founders actually were part of that initial pilot program of Dev Bootcamp. I think what happened later on is that a lot of people realized that hey, like the barrier to entry wasn't as high to start their own bootcamps. So over the last like 2 years, you started to see hundreds and hundreds of boot camps coming to market. And a lot of them could not sustain the quality and the intensity and also the rigor that it requires for someone to go from not knowing how to code to actually becoming an engineer in terms of how like the process of teaching them. So I think what we'll probably see over the next few years is a lot of consolidation in terms of the programs that are successful in helping people get jobs. Those will probably start getting more market share and the ones who are not able to place people in jobs or not able to get people jobs, you'll start seeing them like shut down more and more. And I think another thing to take into consideration is now a lot of, a lot of these bootcamps are now regulated by the government. So if uh, a bootcamp wants to make an update to their curriculum and they want to start teaching you React or a different subject or a different topic, they have to get it approved by the state, which adds a lot of complexities and now you have to have a very big budget you might have to have a person responsible to like get the government like on board with whatever you're trying to teach so then the entrance to barrier will be a lot ho- harder to get into than before so yeah. it's going to be interesting to see but just to clarify to our listeners the the bootcamp model works you just have to do your research before you join a bootcamp to make sure that the people who go through those bootcamps actually get jobs at startups And it's not just promises that, hey, like, we'll teach you how to code in JavaScript and Ruby.
0: And to Saron's point, to recognize that the bootcamp model is not the only way to learn how to code. There are multiple ways to learn how Mm -hmm. to code. But when you're thinking about these types of things that you need to understand that quality is really important. And I also think that in addition to consolidation and the increased scrutiny from the government, we're we're also going to start seeing bootcamps more focused on things locally. Because a lot of times when you launch a program, everybody wants to go national immediately when there's plenty of problems and plenty of students to be served here in your own home. So going back to Newbie and talking about online interactions to offline interactions, you have these meetups, but you also have something called CodeLand. Talk to us about that.
2: Yeah. Ah, CodeLand is a magical place. Uh, It lasts two days. And it is a conference that I produced, my very first tech conference back in April. And we're going to do it again next year on May 4 and 5 in New York City again. It was awesome. It was so, so cool. I feel like, you know, I do a lot of speaking. I speak at probably, I think I average maybe like 10 conferences a year. And so, you know, for, for a while, I've been Kind of keeping a list in the back of my head of all the things I hate about conferences and all the things I like about conferences, and I tell myself one day I'm gonna do a conference and I'm gonna do it right. I'm gonna do it my way, and these are things I'm gonna do differently, and this is how it's gonna be better. And so I got to put a lot of those ideas to the test,
0: uh, Kate, Kate and Charles it came out really, really about well. About your conference versus everybody else's conference,
2: everything, everything is better. No, I think <laughs> that the main the the main thing, the thing that kind of holds it all together is that I thought really, really hard about. The user experience of a conference attendee, you know, and it's specifically a conference attendee who had never attended a tech conference before. And so I thought about my first conference experience and the things that either confused me or intimidated me, the things, the things that made me feel like I didn't belong, or things that went over my head. And I really tried to create a cohesive experience for people to make sure they felt welcome, they felt at home, and they were able to follow the conversation. So to be more specific, one of the things that I was really really excited about is. When you first walk into, so we were hosted by Microsoft, and so when you walk into the building on the first floor, you have to go through security, you get your badge, blah blah blah. And then our conference was on the sixth floor, and the way I pictured it in my mind, when you walked into the sixth floor space, I wanted you to feel like that's when you entered Codeland. And so I had a friend of mine who actually lives in Miami, and he flew up just to to help me out with this conference. And you know, he shows up and and he says, um, you know, what do you need me to do? What do you need help with? And I said to him, I have a role called a hallway greeter. And I think you have a really great personality for this. Would you like to be the hallway greeter? And he was totally down for it. And so what he did is literally when you opened the door to come into the Codeland space, he was there waiting for you. He had this big smile. He had his arms open. He was shouting, welcome to Codeland. And he had the sign and he was breakdancing and clapping for you. And just immediately off the bat, when you came into this space, You were showered with love and, you know, feeling very welcome and feeling really happy. And just this extremely high energy person showing you how excited they were to see you. And that just set the tone for the entire conference. And even when people left, we had the volunteers. I think we had about 25 volunteers. They created a human runway. And when you left, they cheered for you. Like they literally cheered for you. They're like, yeah, go. Oh, we're so happy you came. I'll see you tomorrow, you know. And so it was just, you know, thinking about, as someone who is new to tech, new to coding, what are some of the pain points? What are some of the the moments that can feel a little uncomfortable? And how do we make that super welcoming and super exciting? So those are just a couple of the examples in which we did that.
0: This does sound like a magical place.
2: It and is. T-
0: tell us a little bit about the first the first conference you did. Who was there? You know, what subjects did you cover? You know, what was that?
2: Mm-hmm. You mean for Codeland, right?
0: Yeah, for Codeland, yeah.
2: Okay, yeah. So we had a total of, I think it was 51 total speakers and workshop leaders. And we had, the way I thought about it is, you know, I think that, okay, let's just be honest. Most tech conference talks are terrible. They're absolute trash. And the reason why they're trash (laughs) is because number one, they're entirely too technical. They're way too technical. Nobody took off days of work and flew to your city to sit and watch you talk about lines of code that they have no context for. Like nobody wants to do that. So they're entirely too technical. Number two is there's no story behind it. It's just, you know, a lot of times I feel like people talk just to hear themselves talk and there's no emotional connection. There's no narrative. There's no problem to solve. Um, And then there's no empathy. Exactly, exactly. And I feel like for me, the conference talks that have been, that have worked really well and I've seen connect with people are ones that have a clear problem and a solution that have a clear story And that are technical enough that they get me excited to learn more, but don't overwhelm and intimidate me. So what I did was I picked, you know, a handful of topics that I thought were just, you know, generally interesting, whether or not they were, you know, whether or not you were into code, they're generally interesting to you. So we picked art and gaming, community, city life, we picked education, we picked health. And I said, how, you know, let's bring in speakers who have done projects in these areas, and show how you can take something like art that may not initially intuitively feel like a technical topic and how do you bring code into that world and make that work really well. And so we had this, oh, we had this absolutely amazing talk from a woman named Michelle Morales who did one on mental health and code. Wow. And she's a, a graduate student who studies depression. I and like she that. created, yeah, she created this amazing library where you can use audio and video to basically recognize depression, symptoms of depression in people. And she, you know, she did a great job of just talking about mental health issues and depression, all that. But then she said, okay, me as someone who didn't study computer science, I learned to code enough to build this really impressive research project, this really impressive library. And here's how I brought those two worlds together. And so she had a clear story, a really compelling problem. But she still showed some of the technical aspects just enough to get you excited about wanting to learn more.
0: Man, I think I got to go to the next one. I'm excited about it.
2: Yeah. May 4 and 5, next year, 2018.
0: Yeah. So at
1: this point um, in the podcast, we do the lightning round. And um, this is where Arthur, Ruben, and I will ask you several questions. And uh, we're looking for specific answers that list strategies and your resources or tactics that you've used to get to where you are today. So Ruben, take it away.
0: Yeah, so my brother is your exact target audience. He is like thinking about how to get into a coding bootcamp or just learning how to code. And so if you had to choose one Code Newbie episode for him to start with, which one would it be?
2: Ooh, oh, man. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me go to, let me go, let me go to my backlog. I think I have it's like 146 like asking, uh, episodes.
1: a parent because your favorite child. I know, I know.
2: That's so hard. Okay, so he's learning to code, but not quite at the point well, where he's looking he's, for a job.
0: He's a math major. He studied oh, programming. Wow. He's doing triage, doing everything. He's doing the interviews for the boot camps. He's going to get in, but I want him to mm-hmm. have some good references to a study as well. And, and I'm a big fan of your show. So, yes, pick your favorite child.
2: <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is so hard. This is so hard. Okay, okay, okay. Hold on, hold on. I got, I think I I I think I might, would he be maybe interested in data science since he has a math background? Potentially, yeah. Okay. One of our most popular episodes is actually Intro to Data Science. It's episode 137 with Brianna. I want to mess up her last name. I think it's Vecchioni, Vecchioni, something like that. Sorry, girl. But yeah, episode 137, Intro to Data Science. She, um, Brianna and I actually, we used to work together for a short bit at Microsoft and she does data and um, data science and did just an awesome job of explaining what that job is, how she got into it and even walks through, I think we talked about linear regression, but gave like a super, super Newbie-friendly overview of how to work through a data science problem. So I think you'll enjoy that.
1: Awesome, awesome. yeah. So my next question—it's around advice. So on our podcast, there's reoccurring themes that we'll always like bring up from episode to episodes. One example is most of the jobs that people are, that people want to get or end up getting are not listed online. So turning the table around on you, are there any themes or advice that? you've noticed that come up over and over again in your interviews?
2: Any themes that come up, you mean my my job interviews?
1: Not job interviews, in in the interviews that you do with uh, your guests.
2: So are there any like common themes that come up in those conversations?
1: Or like uh, advice or uh, any life lessons?
2: Yeah, so we do a couple of fill in the blanks generally at the end of the podcast episode. And a couple of things that come up specifically around getting a job is that unfortunately, it really is about who you know. And not just what you know. And so, you know, a lot of like even for me personally, a lot of the jobs that I've gotten, I've gotten because you know I asked someone out to coffee, or I, you know, met them at an event, or you know I, I built a relationship, or, or I asked for an intro. So I think a lot of the themes for um, that have come up around career advice stuff on the show have definitely been, you know, show your work, don't just tell your work. So having a really good portfolio. Having tell uh, you know, yep, tell your story. Having a having really good demos, having good projects, but then also you know making sure to use the network that you do have and always be building your network so that when a really cool job opportunity comes, hopefully you have someone close enough to that company that it's not going to be you know a cold application.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No. Definitely. Most jobs are come through referral and aren't online. So related to. Just kind of like you personally, when you were in the boot camp and going through struggles, like not just, you know, how did you recover? Not just like with your community. I know you mentioned art, like dance and things like that, but did you listen to any music or anything when you were, you know, trying to overcome any any, any personal struggles or did you talk to your family? What was your method to overcome that? I think you touched on mental health and I think that's really important. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. um, hmm. I'm not really good at that stuff like I, I really just go all in. I'm like the worst person to talk about self-care or any of that kind of stuff. So I definitely listen to like a lot of rap music. That definitely helped. Yeah. What's the uh favorite I song? oh mm, ooh mm. I think right now it's Bodak Yellow. Like I didn't want to like it but okay. I do. Okay. So that's okay. that's where we are right now. That was um, party Yes. Yes. <laughs> but I think one of the other really I think one of the other really helpful things for me was to talk to people about what I was learning even if they didn't understand what I was saying because being able to just say out loud the things that I learned helped validate that I actually learned them. So I think a big part of me, you know, giving myself a reality check, especially when things felt overwhelming, and they felt impossible, was to, you know, go to my husband and and say, Okay, I'm going to explain Ajax to you. And it's okay, if you don't understand what I'm saying, I'm just going to say some words at you. And just like going through that process of having to explain things out loud, was just awesome. It was like, Oh, I do know what I'm talking about. So I think those opportunities have been really helpful for me. It's a
0: really important point. Like, you know, you, you know, you know something when you could teach it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, he, and my, yep. my dad showed me that whenever he would talk about medicine to my mother sometimes, and she wouldn't fully understand what he's talking about when it came to oncology stuff. And then when I was even trying to learn how to get into banking, I would do the same thing and talk about financial modeling to my brother and sister, and they didn't know what I was talking <laughs> about. But yeah, no, that's, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> we're about to wrap up so the last question is around resources um besides code newbie which everyone should definitely check it out what other resources would you recommend to our audience who are trying to learn how to code
0: what's your favorite podcast too
2: oh my favorite oh that's hard i don't listen as many podcasts as i probably should so that's really hard um i think so i was actually recently on the marketplace tech show which is an apm show and i really like their stuff i think I think that show is really good, and also they have um another series called Codebreakers, which is very well done. It's one of the the few shows that is coding and technical enough, but can still reach people, and you know it's still accessible to folks who aren't quite programmers. And I feel like most tech shows, it's one or the other. You're either you know it's all about developers, or it's all about consumers. And this is a really really great bridge between the two. So I would definitely check out the Codebreaker series um, as far as podcasts go. In terms of other resources in general. Oh, I feel like there's just so many out there. I think that you know, Free Code Camp is probably one that your listeners have heard of, which is free. Um, and it's, I believe, entirely JavaScript. But I, I know our community absolutely, absolutely loves that. Code Academy has always been like a really great primer. It's interesting because I know that a lot of more senior people use Code Academy just to brush up on topics that they or programming languages that they used to know as well. So if you're looking for something just to kind of test the waters, I think that's a really great resource. Awesome. So, yeah, there's a lot out there.
1: Awesome. And for uh, our community members who want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you?
2: Yeah, definitely Twitter. So if you tweet at me, my full name, Saran Yitbarek, Y-I-T-B-A-R-E-K, I'm relatively responsive and my DMs are open. So yeah, feel free to reach out.
1: Awesome. Well, it was a pleasure, Saran. Uh, We'll definitely link um, to your podcast and uh, CodeLand in the show notes. And we'll love to have you on the podcast again to see what you're up to.
2: Yeah, this was fun. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah,
1: thanks a lot. Thanks, bye. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, Encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't want you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.